Holy Spirit and wisdom to make the right choices because you have assured us that you will walk with us through every moment of our lives. And so this morning as we worship, Father, would you see it in part as a thank you. Thank you for all of those things that you have done for us. And I pray that you would also see it as our offering to you as we give ourselves back to you for your service. As we ask you to use us in what it is that you are doing here. We want to do that, Father, because we're grateful. We're grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his mercy and grace in our lives. So I pray that you would hear that from us this morning. And now as we take this moment to open your word, we ask that we would hear your voice clearly by your spirit through your word. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. If I were to ask you if you know any of the 12 disciples from the New Testament, and you were to say, well, I think I only know one, I bet for most of you it would be Peter. Peter is really easy to know because he was kind of out there, wasn't he? If you've read any of the Gospels at all, you know that Peter was kind of bold. He was kind of brash. He was even a little bit reckless. If something came to his mind, he was not afraid to put it out there for everybody to hear. Uh, Peter was the one just before Jesus was arrested in the garden when Jesus was praying. He was the one when the soldiers came that suggested that they should fight. We can take these guys. And he was the one who whipped out a sword and lopped off one of the soldiers' ears. He wasn't much of a swordsman, as you might expect. Peter was the one who loudly proclaimed his undying loyalty to Jesus. Jesus, I will never leave you. And then a few hours later, very publicly denied and blasphemed Jesus. Most people would have given up on Peter. Most people would have said after, you know, the fourth or the fifth or the 25th blunder, okay, Peter, I'm just cutting you loose here because I don't think this is going to work out. Most of us would have done that. But something happened shortly after Jesus rose from the grave and ascended into heaven. It happened in Acts chapter 2. Some of you may be familiar with this as well. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descended from heaven and indwelled Peter and filled Peter and the rest of the disciples and the rest of the believers that were there in Jerusalem that day. And that completely transformed Peter. Everything changed. If you read Acts chapter 2, you will see that everyone was gathered. The crowds were gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And Peter went out and he preached a message. And at the end of the message, 3,000 people got saved. 
And a few days later, Peter preached another message. And 2,000 more people got saved. We talked about Peter for a few minutes last week. If you were here last Sunday, we talked about him. Do you remember the promise that we looked at that Jesus made about Peter in Matthew chapter 16? If you do nod your head, it'll encourage me. If you don't nod your head anyway, because I'm going to remind you and then you'll know. So Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, what did Jesus say? He said, you are Petros. You're a little stone, Peter. You're a little building block, and I'm going to use you while I build my church. You're going to be part of that. And Jesus did that. And for about 35 years, Peter provided leadership and direction to the church as it was getting off the ground. It was so young and so fresh and so new, and there were difficulties, and there were struggles, and there were problems, and everybody was trying to figure out how they were going to do this. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to all fit together, and how are we supposed to work together? And Peter was one of those building blocks. And Jesus used him. It's not recorded for us in the Bible, but extra-biblical sources, sources of writings from that time period that are not the Bible, tell us that Peter was executed by Nero in 67 or 68 A.D. And it was at about that time that he wrote the letter of 2 Peter, likely from prison likely in his final days before he was executed. Now, when he wrote 1 Peter, that was all about encouragement and difficulty. And Peter reminds us of the inheritance that we have in Christ and and our identity in Christ and his promise to, to strengthen us and establish us. And now in 2 Peter, which is what we're going to be looking at starting today for the next few weeks, in 2 Peter, he challenges us to grow in grace. What Peter really wants us to do is he wants us to deepen our faith. He wants us to increase our trust in our dependence upon God. Now, there's two reasons that Peter talks about specifically why he is challenging us to do that, and I think they're very appropriate for us in 2022. The first reason that Peter's going to talk about when we get to the second chapter of this little book is that there are false teachers everywhere. There are all kinds of erroneous beliefs There are all kinds of heresies. There are all kinds of things that are being said out there about who God is and what he wants and who we are and what we're supposed to be. And Peter says, because that's happening, you need to deepen your faith. You need to grow in grace. And there's another reason why he says that. And it's also very current in our minds right now. And that is because judgment is coming. Someday... And I don't know about you, but some days it feels like it's going to be soon. Someday, Jesus is going to return and he's going to judge this earth. And Peter knows that. And that's why he is challenging us. And I want you to just think about this little tidbit. Try to, try to lock this into your mind. If you're planning on being around for the next nine weeks as we go through Second Peter, lock this in that Peter is at the end of his life. 
These are his last days. And because these are his last days, a lot of things that Peter has cared about in his life for 65 or 70 years are fading. He doesn't care about them so much anymore. You see, at the end of Peter's life, nothing matters as much as the spiritual health of the people that he has directed to Christ and discipled for these last three decades. That's what matters to him. And in this letter, he's going to detail this process of growing in grace. What does it look like? What must we do? What must be wary of? But before we think about these things, we need to think about this. To grow in grace, we must first obtain faith. To grow in grace, we must first obtain faith. So we're going to look at this letter. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. And if you have bookmarks in your Bibles or you have those little ribbons that a lot of Bibles have, just pull it right out there and put it in 2 Peter because we're going to spend the next nine weeks here. And we're going to look at this letter verse by verse, all 61 verses. We're going to read together and we're going to look at and we're going to seek to understand, okay? So here we go. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to notice how he introduces himself. A lot of times we kind of glide over these first few verses, but we can't do that in this letter because they're so important. He introduces himself as a servant and an apostle. Now, as an apostle, he has a mission from God. That's literally what the word apostle means. It means one who is sent with a mission, one who is sent for a purpose. So Peter is that. He knows that. They know that by this time because they've known Peter for a long time. But I want you to notice that before he is an apostle, he says, I'm a servant, literally a slave. The Greek word here literally means a slave, a bond servant. But it's a different kind of slave. It's a different kind of servant. I'm not going to take 10 minutes and explain it all to you here this morning. But it's actually a willing slave. The kind of servant that, that Peter is talking about being here is the kind of servant who is released from his duty because he has paid off his debt and because he loves his master so much, he decides to stay and serve him. And that's how Peter describes himself. He's a willing slave of the Lord Jesus Christ because of what God has done for him. And this is a good example of our posture, the humble posture that we need to have. Here's Peter, an apostle one of the most important parts of the early church, he's done so much. God has used him so greatly over these last three or four decades. And he says, I'm just a slave. I'm just a willing servant. That's all I am. You notice here, Peter doesn't say, I am Peter, the most holy, right, reverend, archbishop of whatever. He says, no, nah, I'm a slave. I'm just a servant. Now, when I look at that and I read that, I say, how does a guy have that kind of humility when the first time he preaches 
right out of the box, two messages, and 5,000 people get saved. I mean, I think that's kind of amazing, don't you? I mean, 5,000 people get, didn't get saved the first time I preached. I've been doing this for 29 years. There hasn't been 5,000 people get saved. <laughs> Can you imagine? He opens his mouth, 3,000 people. How does a guy stay humble? How does he, how does he recognize that he's just a servant? I want you to see that it was because Peter understood the nature of the faith that he had received. Notice there in the verse, he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Now, I don't know what your understanding of faith is here this morning. Some of you have probably been walking with God way longer than I've been alive. And some of you may be here this morning and you're not sure what it even means to walk with God. So I don't know where you are in your understanding of faith. But I want you to see here that when Peter describes our faith, he says we have obtained faith. Usually when we talk about faith, we talk about all the faith that we give or that we have or in our minds, we're probably thinking about that we generate. But Peter says, uh-uh. We have obtained faith. The word obtained here literally means to be chosen to receive. Peter's faith, our faith, I want you to understand this, our salvation our faith that we exercise in Jesus Christ so that we might be saved is not achieved, it is given. Okay? That's very important. It's not achieved, it's given. It's not by our effort, it's not by our worthiness, but it's by God's sovereign purpose. Let me read you a little quote here from John MacArthur, maybe some of you have heard of him, well-known Bible teacher. Listen to how he describes this. He says, Only when the Holy Spirit awakens our dead souls in response to hearing the gospel is saving faith initiated so that the sinner can embrace salvation. Only when the Spirit awakens our dead souls is saving faith initiated. I want you to understand this, my friends. Not only does God give us the gift of salvation, but he also gives us the faith to receive it. How do I know that? Well, the scripture makes it very clear. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we read this. For by grace we are saved through faith. And that, does anybody else know the verse? And that not of what? Ourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. We are so self-centered as human beings, 
that even if God were to say, here is the gift of salvation, I'm placing it at your feet, all you have to do is pick it up, we would say, man, look what I did. Did you see me pick that up? Did you see me do that? I am amazing. Don't shake your head at me. You know you would. If God said, here's 99% of what you need to go to heaven, all you need to come up with 1%, we would say, man, that is the best 1% anyone has ever seen. We would. We would do it. Paul says, no, no. It's a gift. Not only the salvation, but the faith. And Peter echoes it here. We have obtained faith. We bring nothing to the table. Speaking of being at the table, imagine that you are at the table. Everybody looks reasonably healthy here. I'm guessing you belly up to the table a couple of three times a day, like me. Imagine you're at the table and you're eating some nice crusty bread. And it decides to go down the wrong pipe, sideways. And you start choking. And Melody has coached me on what true choking is. True choking is like nothing, no sound, nothing coming out. Just, I don't know if she's worried about it or she wants, wants me to be ready. <laughs> Nothing's coming out. Airflow, gone. If that happened to you, do you know when you would start breathing again? When someone else came and either gave you the Heimlich or got in there somehow and got it out. There's nothing that you can do to make yourself start breathing again. And that's the picture that we have here in Christ. We have obtained faith. There is nothing we can do to bring ourselves back to life. Many dozens of times in the New Testament, we are described without Christ as dead. Dead people don't bring themselves back to life. We cannot bring ourselves back to fellowship with God, to salvation. We must obtain it. Peter says this faith is on equal standing with ours. He's writing to, to the people there a couple of thousand years ago. He's writing to you today. He's writing to me. He says, your faith is the same as my faith. We're on equal standing because it's because of Christ's righteousness. Peter doesn't say, look at me. I'm an apostle. Look at my faith. And here's all you little people here that I'm ministering to in your little faith. No, he says, we have equal faith, equal standing. Why? Because it doesn't depend. It didn't matter who Peter was. It doesn't matter who I am. It doesn't matter who you are. What matters is, what does he say? Christ's righteousness. That's what matters. Look at verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace, two crucial elements of a life that is honoring to God. We cannot survive. For those of us here this morning, I would guess it's the majority of us, but I will not presume that it's everyone. 
For those of us that are here this morning that are walking with Christ, that have trusted Christ for salvation, that have obtained this faith, we cannot survive without God's grace and peace. And Peter prays that it would be multiplied in our lives. The word multiplied there means increased to maximum capacity. Peter says, I am praying that God would give you the most grace and the most peace possible for your lives. That's what John is talking about in John 1.16 when we... Look at this verse, we've referred to it many times when he says that we have received grace upon grace. Like the ocean waves coming into the beach, there's always another one, there's always more grace. How do we receive it? I want you to notice this in verse 2. This is important. We receive it in the knowledge of Jesus. This word knowledge here means first-hand knowledge. It means it means contact knowledge. We only have this kind of knowledge of Christ by coming into contact with Him. Direct contact, close contact, intimate connection with Jesus Christ is the only way to have the knowledge of Him that brings our grace and peace on a daily basis. This is the first of 16 times Peter is going to use this word in 61 verses. That's pretty often. It's more than once every four verses. We must be saturated with the knowledge of Christ. And that only comes through Scripture. That's why... We only get together like this once a week when everybody's together. We have our small groups and we have our classes. And like tonight, we have the prayer time. So there are other times when we get together. But there's only once a week when we get together like this with everybody. And we're together for an hour. And we spend half of it doing what? We spend half of it doing this. Reading God's Word together. Because that's the only way that we can have this, this intimate knowledge, this close contact with him. So that we might know him. Now, many of you know Melody, my wife. Some of you know her really well. Some of you are in her small group or you've been in her group for a uh, few years, and so you know her. And then there's a few of you that are really close friends with Melody, and you know her very well. Right, Joellen? Joellen's one of Melody's closest friends. She knows her very well, and there's a few others of you that know her very well. But you know what? You don't know her like I know her. I've been married to her for almost 29 years in six weeks. And I've been getting to know her for probably 35 or 36. <laughs> and I know her very well. And the more I get to know her, the more I love her. And it's because we spend so much time together, living life, talking, figuring things out. Deciding what we are going to do. Deciding what we need to be doing. 
And this is what Peter is talking about here. In order for you and I to have grace and peace multiplied to us as much as we could possibly receive so that we can live the life that God wants us to live, we have to have this close contact, this knowledge of Christ. And the rest of our lives as believers needs to be lived in pursuit of that knowledge. This is how we grow in grace. Look at verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Think about what's being said here. This amazing generosity of God to give us everything that we need and his miraculous power provides it. Listen to how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Let me give you a little tip. When you're reading God's word and you see a word repeated a couple of times, you should pay attention to it. And in this verse... Paul uses the word all four times. All grace, all sufficiency in all things at all times. For some reason, and please tell me why we do this. For some reason, we think that God is stingy with his grace. Am I wrong or are we not often asking God why he isn't doing more for us? Why, God? Why don't I have this? Why don't I have that? Why isn't this happening? Why isn't that happening? Why aren't you showing yourself to me? Why aren't you working here? Why aren't you doing this? We always think that he's stingy with his grace, but but this is a contradiction to what we know in the Scripture. One of the identifying marks of a disciple, a true disciple of Jesus Christ, is the willingness to bring our lives into line with Scripture. A willingness to look at our lives and say, This isn't right because Scripture says this, and to change the way that we think. So instead of always thinking that God is being stingy with His grace, always wondering why He's not doing this or He's not doing that, we need to bring our expectations into line with Scripture and see that God's power provides everything that we need so that we can be who He wants us to be and so that we can do what He wants us to do. That's the mark of a true disciple. If you're a true disciple here this morning, you need to bring your life into line with what God is saying here. Everything that we need for life and godliness. How does he give us everything we need? Look at the verse. What does it say? It says that he gives it to us through the knowledge of him. Once again, through the knowledge of Christ, The drawing close to Christ, this is the key 
to our provision. If you are at that point in your life where you are saying things like, why isn't God giving me what we need? Why isn't he helping me? Why don't I ever know what to do? Then I would challenge you to ask yourself, are you saturating your mind with Scripture? Are you actively drawing closer to Christ? He is calling us to his glory and virtue. Only his glorious power and sinlessness can save us, and it's only found in the knowledge of Christ. Where are you looking? Where are you looking for help, for strength, for meaning, for peace, for fulfillment? If you're not experiencing those things in your life, I would suggest that you consider where you're looking. God has given us all that we need for life and godliness. Look at verse 4. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption, or from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Because of his power, because of his glory, his sinlessness, he draws us, he calls us, he gives us this faith, he gives us this life. Now, Peter says, he gives us all of these great promises. He's promised us eternal life. He promises us joy, peace, the Holy Spirit, guidance, wisdom, heaven, and inheritance. There are hundreds of promises in the New Testament alone. So what's the purpose of all these amazing promises? Purpose of these promises, notice what the verse says, so that you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, I don't know if you've ever read this verse before. I've read it a few times, many times. And this phrase just blows my mind. God gives us all of these things, all of these promises, so that we might be partakers of the divine nature. What does that mean? Because of his unbelievable grace, God pulls us out of the corruption of this world, the rottenness of of this world and he gives us life and peace and promises everything that we need so that we can share his life so that we can share his life now we're we're not God we don't become God but he gives us his life and we share it with him we share it in him and he and us, we were so far from God. That's what Peter is saying here. He's taken us out of, we've escaped the corruption of this world. 1 John 4.10 says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. and gave himself as a sacrifice for our sin. He gives us his life and he shares his life with us. Friends, before you can ever hope to grow in grace, you must first obtain faith. And that happens only one way. Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, awakens your dead soul 
and informs your heart of its need and draws you to Christ to accept the grace and forgiveness and peace that he offers you freely. We have been given so much, everything that we need, in fact, to live a godly life. Everything through the knowledge of Christ. Now, this is the part of the show where I say something like this. If you can't remember anything else that we talk about this morning, I want you to remember this. And I apologize if some of you will hear this and you say, well, gee, that's a little harsh. I don't mean it to be harsh, but I do want to speak the truth to you this morning. If you are not living a godly life, it is because you have chosen not to. If you're here this morning and you have chosen your own way, you have pursuing your own end, that is your choice. Because God has given us everything that we need. So the question for us is this. The question for you is, will you accept his grace and provision? Will you accept the fact that he has given you everything that you need? Will you trust his way and his end to his end instead of your own? Will you choose to saturate your mind with scripture so that you can grow in your intimate knowledge of Christ? That's the question that we need to ask ourselves. My friends, the question is never, Will God give me what I need? It's never that, and this passage proves it to us. The question is always, will I choose it? Will I choose to accept it? Will I choose to trust him? Next week, we're going to move on from here, and we're going to start to see all the things that, that Peter challenges us that we have to do all these character traits that we need to add to our faith in order to grow in grace. But I want you to just think about this. Peter did not start with that. He started with what we've been given. All of it has been given to us freely because of our Savior and through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that should inspire our humility in our thankfulness, in our gratitude. Which is why we have communion. That's why we celebrate communion together. So that we can give thanks because of everything that he has done for us. I want to read you a few verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning as we, as we celebrate communion together. For I have received from the Lord... What I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread 
and drink of the cup. This is something that we do together as a church to give thanks for this gift of salvation, to be thankful and to show our thankfulness that we have obtained faith, that God has awakened our souls by His Holy Spirit to our need, and that we have trusted Christ. Christ Himself instituted this with His disciples just before He went to the cross, and He instructed us to do it as well, to understand what He had done and and to give thanks for it. Now here, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 challenges us also along with that not to come to the table unworthily. In other words, don't take for granted what Christ has done for you. It's no little thing. And also, he instructs us that if there is something between us and a brother or sister, that we should make that right before we celebrate communion together. That's what he says, or means when he says, don't come unworthily. This morning when you came in, you may have noticed, but in the cup holder and the armrest of your seat, there's a little packet there that has the bread in it and has the cup. And in just a moment, the band is going to play a song for us. And I want to encourage you in this way. As they play, take a moment And thank the Lord for what he has done for you. If you're a Christ follower, thank him for your salvation. Thank him for your faith, for the grace and peace that you experience in your life and all the promises that he has given to us. And dedicate yourself to him. If you're not a Christ follower here this morning, then you can eat that piece of bread and you can drink the cup, but it will have no meaning for you because you have not trusted Christ. That salvation is available for you this morning as well. You can trust him. You can ask him for forgiveness for your sin, and he will save you. You can talk to me about it afterwards. If someone invited you to come this morning, you can talk with them, and they can help you to understand what it means to trust Christ. But for those of us who walk with him, this moment is full of meaning as we give thanks. All that we have is in Christ and by Christ and for Christ. And the only way that we can live and honor him is that we are surrounded by his power and strength for every day. We need him every moment of every day. Let's give thanks before we celebrate communion together this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We are grateful for all of your generosity to us. And we pray that you would be honored in this moment as we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, as we celebrate the sacrifice. See our thankfulness, Father. We pray that you would be honored as we pause in this moment to remember what Christ has done. Father, more than anything this morning, we are thankful for Jesus Christ. I pray that our hearts and our minds would be be saturated with the knowledge of him through your word and by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for all of your grace to us. Thank you that that we have obtained faith. We are so weak in ourselves, so dead because of our sins, we can't even reach out and grab what you place in front of us. It is all you, Father. You have given us all things that we might serve you. Father, we pray that this service will have been honoring to you, that it's been glorifying to your name. We pray that you will take the things that have been 
that have been sung and read and prayed and taught and that you will drive them deep into our hearts that we might not soon forget what it means to walk with you. Thank you for these quiet moments to prepare our hearts to be strengthened. And as we go out into the world, as we go out into the community, as we reconnect with our families and our friends and our, and our co-workers this week, I pray that we might be a light in this community, a light of the truth of the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Thanks for being here, folks. I hope you have a great week.